0: Okay, so um, I'm going to try to cover a decent amount of ground today. We're going to try to get through two chapters. That'll be chapters 24 and 25. Um, And the the reason why I want to cover both is they, I think they're sort of best understood going hand in hand. Um, You all know that the chapters and verses weren't in the original scrolls, right? I mean, we all know that. So these sort of arbitrary divides, while they can be helpful for scripture memorization, um, and they're, they're helpful for getting us to look at specific trees, but then you lose the forest, right? And so I think sometimes it's good to remove those chapter divisions and sort of read this in large chunks at a time. So that's what we're going to... We're going to try to do that a little bit this morning by putting these two chapters side by side. Um, I've got something in particular with these two chapters that I want to point out, and I can only do that if we kind of cover them together. So that's sort of my my tentative vision for what this next hour will look like. Um, I do want to, just sort of as a warm up for myself more than anything, want to talk about something that we covered last week um, about the land of Tyre. Um, Because David pointed out something that's been sort of rolling around in my head for this past week. Um, Because as we're reading about Tyre, and we're talking about the place that Tyre holds in sort of big picture um, symbolism of scripture, uh, David said something that just as a as a remark he said you know it sounds like it sounds like us it sounds like america um, and whenever whenever i hear that my first impulse is to say that you're not going to find america in the scriptures you know because because this is a story about the ancient near East, right? And our our place in that story is we're the we're the we're the chaotic oceans of the West. I mean that's that's we're we're off the map. Um, now we are we are Gentiles so we partake in the story in as much as the Gentiles participate in it, right? Um, but America specifically, you're not gonna find that in the scriptures. There may be some scripture interpretations that you run across when you get to things like Revelation where some people who try to understand these things as literally as they possibly can, they'll say things like, oh, well, this is referring to Black Hawk helicopters and stuff like that. If you come across Black Hawk helicopters in the Bible, you've made a wrong turn somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> All right, so let's just get that out of the way. What about Hueys? <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Well, you may have been going here too, but um, at the same time, the flip side of that is that. Throughout all time, God is sovereign, He's well aware that the United States will become a nation in the far future. You know, when He wrote this. Absolutely. And you know, and I mean, so <clears throat> there's no reason that you couldn't take elements of prophecy and assume that that things in the far future would be affected by it, including things like countries as they are now. You know. So, I mean, yeah, it doesn't mention the United States of America, but, but I mean, God clearly, you know, I mean, we're a superpower on earth, and clearly God, you know, God predicts the end of the nations, you know, and the end of things, and, and uh, I'm just saying that, I'm just saying there's two sides of that. I'm not trying to be a devil's advocate again. But I'm
0: just saying. Well, I'm about to devil's advocate myself here. Okay, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I didn't it's okay. Your time. No, it's okay. Okay. Well, so okay. so you said something there that the, the Bible does talk about superpowers. So, if the Bible yeah. has things to say about superpowers, you know, national superpowers yeah. on the world stage, okay, now we're talking about things that might apply to us. Yeah. Okay, so Tyre is a is a um, a seafaring place um, very prosperous at this time they uh, are sort of the epitome of Gentile wealth and, and uh, I don't know I don't know power I don't know how much power to play into that but wealth for sure prosperity, trade, international trade, alright so the Bible looks at Tyre especially in Ezekiel and, and compares it to Satan right? And that's what we talked about last week. And so when I hear something like, well, that's, um, that sounds like us, it gives me pause. And I've sort of been thinking about that all week. Um, to play devil's advocate on David's behalf. Um, Tyre was inhabited by the Phoenicians. Can we say that the Phoenician culture is connected with our own? Absolutely we can. We definitely can say that. Um, even the language that we use, we get, at least in part, from the Phoenicians. They gave us our alphabet. That's how much we're affected by it. So, the, the longer I've thought about this as the weeks go on, like we, we are in a... Real way descended culturally from Phoenician civilization. So, as a just sort of an example of this, I have this handout here. What we call the the Roman or the Latin alphabet is actually the Phoenician alphabet, you know, and it was it was taken by the Greeks and and adapted for their purposes, and it sort of evolved into what we have today. But these letters that you'll see on the alphabet, you you recognize them, they're familiar. Well, the Phoenicians made it to Britain before the Romans did. and We're largely a British um, culture. Yeah, it actually gets more interesting than that. There is evidence that they came to the Americas before Christopher Columbus did, the Phoenicians. Now, we don't talk about it that much because it's more Central America that they went to, and we're not, you know, we're, more interested in our own lands right when we talk about this stuff, but there is actually evidence that the Phoenicians not only visited America, you know, the Vikings visited, but they weren't established there. There's evidence that the Phoenicians actually established themselves and settled in Mm -hmm. Central America before the days of Christopher Columbus. Is that one of the um, theories behind the little pyramids they have? Uh, That would be... Well, people who look at that stuff see, "Aha, these two things are connected. Right. Um, yeah. I'm kind of out of my depth here, but I'm just saying that there's there are connecting points uh, between us and the Phoenician culture. So you know, when we talk about the land of Tyre, I think David's right. I think we can see ourselves in in sort of an indirect way in this. it's also It's also worth pointing out that the the Phoenicians. That was the name that the Greeks gave to them. They didn't call themselves that. The Phoenicians were actually—they were a melting pot mm-hmm. group of people. They were. Where were the,
2: where were the Phoenicians centered uh,
0: originally? Uh, their major cities were. Oh, originally they were originally uh, they were originally uh, Canaanite.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: They were right. displaced by Israel when Israel came in
4: American. and took over. Palestine. Yeah, their heyday was in Le- the Lebanon area. Yeah. Okay. Which is north of Israel.
0: Yeah. So they went closer to the Mediterranean and settled there. And their major cities were Tyre, Sidon, and there was one other that I'm not remembering at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. They became known for their seafaring. mm mm-hmm. which, 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 means international trade. Yeah. Right. Ship. Yeah. 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 So, mm-hmm. um, well, even beyond
4: that, though, you know, one of the Major things you can glean from the book of Judges is that every uh, generation in Israel fell into the same problems, you know, suffered the same sin, had to be redeemed by a leader, and it was just over and over and over again the cycle. So, you know, if that's going to happen to Israel, then certainly it's going to happen to other people groups that would go through these same cycles throughout history. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, Tyre is Babylon, is, you know, yeah, Rome, yeah. is Nazi Germany, is yeah. Soviet Russia.
2: This, this, that's been talked about the early church, that everything that happened to the early church is developed in the first four or five hundred years has happened over and over again in the church subsequent to for this.
0: So, this is exactly why I agree with that. And this is exactly why. I think it's valuable to look at these big picture patterns in the Bible because then you can recognize them when you see them repeating again. You know, there's this saying that, um, you know, history history doesn't repeat itself but it does rhyme. There's it's a right. saying no, really. yes. You see echoes. Well, you see echoes, one. You one of, see echoes throughout. Things. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay, so that was just... But uh, it does rhyme. So that was something that I've been sort of mulling over ever since last Sunday. So... Um, I'm glad that you said that because it's kind of just got the wheels turning so now let's uh, let's look at chapters 24 and 25 if I could say we... something real quick yeah it's uh, just sort of off the cuff. but we,
5: we've been watching the third season of the chosen yeah and there's a situation where he sends, sends them out two by two and sends two of them to to cut to Yeah. yeah you know, and it creates a turmoil. There between Jews and Phoenicians. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And so then you have this whole clash coming together that Jesus has to kind of—it's—it's it's the door that opens up for him to speak to the Gentiles, basically. So.
0: Yeah. Well, there was a lot of, there was a lot of interaction between Israel, sure. the Israelites, and the Phoenicians. I mean, Jesus. If I remember correctly, Jesus travels to Tyre at one point during his ministry. I mean, there's a lot of interactions. So, um, all right, we've been looking at the the edges of the map, right? We've been looking at the far north, the far east, the far west, um, the far south. So now we have sort of this this summary of it all here in chapter twenty-four. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants, and it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. Now to Greg's point about these repeating themes in world history, right? This These three verses here could just as easily apply to, to Egypt during Israel's liberation as it could here during Isaiah's time. As it could um, in time future before Christ's return. As it could during the days of Jesus' first advent, when um, John the Baptist says that the valleys will be raised up and the mountains will be made low. That's exactly what's being talked about here. The Lord will raise up the low and lower the high and and it shall be the same judgment for all peoples. And what he's talking about here is a great A great cataclysmic scattering. So what I want to bring to your attention and to be looking at for these these two chapters is something that I'm sort of, in my mind, I'm sort of calling the great inversion. And this is sort of a thing that I can apply when I'm reading scripture, is to look at the great inversion. And this is something that starts out as bad that God turns on his head and uses for good. Right, so think about the story of Joseph, mm-hmm. what you intended for evil, mm-hmm. God uses for good. Right. Um, the scattering, the great scattering of peoples in a very cataclysmic way, mm-hmm. we can see this as on the one hand, a moment of terrible judgment and um, apocalyptic horror, And on the other hand, in it is the mystery of salvation, because in the scattering, and we've been saying this from the beginning with our Isaiah book, in the scattering of the peoples is the sowing of God's seed, because as the people are scattered, the word goes out and planted in the hearts of the people, right? And then, as Isaiah will promise later in the book, the word will not return void. Okay, so this is a very important motif that you can see throughout Scripture. It's the scattering of the people. It's the scattering of Adam and Eve out of Eden, right? It's the scattering of um, Babel. Well, yeah, I was going to say yeah, Babel's definitely a big one. Um, it's, also, uh, it's also the story of Noah going from Ararat to the ends of the earth, right? And that was a time of great judgment as well, right? That was a, a moment of judgment. But in that is the reinstating of the covenant, right? And it's a, it's a moment of grace. Beginning. It's a new beginning, right? So this is a motif that you can see throughout Scripture. Babel is sort of the... That's, that should be the first one that comes to mind. It's the great scattering. But even in that is the great inversion because Babel ends up being fulfilled in Pentecost, right? And you, you just covered the Tower of Babel, Right? And so I, I'm assuming that Pentecost came up. It always, does. it always does, right? And for good reason. Because, because Pentecost is the fulfillment of the Babel story. Another example is
4: the uh, Babylonian captivity where the Jews are forced, forced further and further east where they take their writings with them. And there are these magi in Persia who read these writings yeah. Mm-hmm. And they recognize the prophecy of Balaam, mm-hmm. of the star, so they follow the star to the Savior. Yes. Uh, Madeline Engel, in her book, uh, Walking on
5: Water, talks about the destructive, constructive work of God, that he's almost, it always has to destroy something in order to construct something. You know, so it's someone similar. Well, yeah, I mean... It destroys the, Judaism to
0: create Christianity. You know, yeah, sort of I mean, to, to scatter the people. Across. I mean, that's to end their world. Their world is over. Yeah. That's that's sort of, uh, I mean, it's an act of chaos, mm-hmm. right? But then from that chaos, God's going to make something God new. Something. He's going to make something new. So that's the great inversion. And you should see that all throughout Scripture. Uh, that's just a motif to be looking for. Well, um, is
5: a great example of it too, where you where know, Greek, uh, the Greeks scattered the Jews all throughout the Mediterranean world. You know, they, uh, when they come, when, when uh, Alexander conquered Judah, yeah. he sent all these Jews, he dispersed them all over the Mediterranean world. But it, it opened up the door for Christ's ministry to be able to go to synagogues all over the Mediterranean world. Well, I
0: mean, let's take it further than that. Alexander the Great uh, making the world Greek Laid the foundation for the New Testament, <laughs> Amazing, so. taking the Phoenician alphabet, right, and and, and really redeeming it. Um, so this is this is the same as when you see in Scripture, "Prepare the way for the Lord, make His path straight." This is the same thing, right? It's this great um, leveling and tearing down. And preparation for God's arrival,
3: mm-hmm.
0: which, you know, to to apply the great inversion to God's arrival, on the one hand, for for Babylon and for the serpent, you know, that is a moment of horror. But for God's people, for right, mm-hmm. it is a reason for rejoicing. So that's where we are, and um, we are still we are still experiencing this today.
2: Is all of this leading up to? He
3: says, "I will make all things new." He's going to destroy this, this world we live in. We to our, our own, to. That's the great inversion. That's the great
0: inversion. You know, at, at first in Genesis, cities are. Does anybody still want to see this? Yeah. So, um, you know, in in the Bible, at first cities are a negative thing. The cities are not positive in Genesis.
2: It's a picture of the sin. But, oh, I yeah. but yeah.
0: Yeah, it's when God makes all things new, the whole world is the city of Jerusalem. Yeah. There's the great inversion. Once you see this, you can't unsee it. It's all throughout the Bible. That God takes something and makes it and makes it new. Right? He takes water and turns it into wine. It goes on and on and on. So all right, verse four. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the law. Violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth. I'm going to read this whole section here all the way down to verse 13. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine and singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations. As when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. Real lighthearted stuff, huh? All right, so let's keep playing with this idea of the great inversion. And then I'll open it up for, you know, if you all see anything in this section that we should talk about. Um, In this section, you know, loosely through verse 13, it keeps using wine over and over. Wine keeps coming up. And so when I look at this stuff, you know, I'm interested in the, the, the symbols and the patterns. So it stands out to me in this section that wine keeps coming up over and over and over, right? It first shows up in verse 7, um, and then it continues, verse 9, uh, verse 11, verse 13. You see grapes and wine over and over in this section. All right, so why would God use grapes and wine As a as a as a as an illustration for really the end of the world, this prophecy about the end of the world given to the ends of the earth, about this apocalyptic thing at the end of time, when God ends the old world and starts the new. What is, and I'm just gonna open this up for a little bit of discussion here. What is the symbolism of wine in Scripture?
3: Holy Spirit.
0: Symbol of the Holy Spirit? How so? Yeah,
4: I have just always heard that. Okay, <laughs> all right,
0: fair enough. Blood, <laughs> yes. The Blood, yes. Blood. blood, it is. Safe. It's, 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 a, it's yeah. weirdly associated with blood. In keeping with your uh, inversion
1: teaching, um, you know the, the grapes have to be destroyed to get yeah. the wine. Have to stomp on them. You know, pulverize them. No. So grapes are grapes are annihilated in order to
0: get the wine. Just the
1: thought. You
0: know? Yeah, and, and we can take that further. You know, they are they're sort of um, they're they're beaten into this state of death. Yeah. And then after that, you let it rot and ferment for a while. And so, like, to drink wine is literally to drink something that's decayed. It's it's past the point of death. Right, it's, 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 like it's something in a state of decomposition. But according to
4: connoisseurs, it's considered a living thing. It breathes. It, because yeah, it develops in the cask, and then it develops in the bottle, and then you pop it open, and the oxygen hits it, and it continues to develop. Are you saying it's a kind of life after death?
0: Hmm. Could there be yeah, such sort a thing? Of. <laughs> <laughs> well,
4: that's why juice Well, let's not go too far. Putting put yeah. new wine
5: into old skins. Because it's going to expand, yeah. yeah. And the old skin is blowing, yeah. Exploding <laughs> into pieces. You know, so, got to give it you know, the, the
0: leather has to be flexible. So, you know. is wine mostly a positive thing or a negative thing in the Bible? I'm
3: just going to ask you. Uh, this might not be right. I'm thinking wine could be a picture of wrath, of God's wrath. Absolutely.
0: The wine press of God's wrath. Yeah. And then the cup's not prayer. The, the cup of wrath down. to drink. His yeah. destruction. Yeah, and it
3: brings life in.
5: Yeah. Uh, so. but just one statement makes it the most positive thing almost in the, in the uh, New Testament, which Jesus said, this is, this, is my, "This is my, the blood. This is my mm-hmm. blood. Drink it." Yeah. So I mean, can't get more
0: positive
4: than that. Yeah.
0: So. I mean, we all know that if you're tracking the symbolism of wine, you're going to end up at the Eucharist. Right, you can't hope right. end up there. Right. Right. That's right. There is a
4: difference in Scripture, too, though, of the, of the word wine and the phrase fruit of the vine. Fruit of the vine is far more the ceremonial, symbolic use of wine within Scripture. Uh, I mean, there's lots of warnings against uh, the use of wine in Proverbs, you know, the, the overuse. Yeah. So um, there's, there is a distinction there. Um, and, you know, wine is being used here in terms of judgment, you know, just within the context of judgment. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's also a, a, a verse in Revelation, and I can't, I can't quote it, but something about how wine is very dear. You know, it's, it's uh, at this time of judgment, and everything is so expensive. So I mean, it, it is it is exactly what you're talking about, though. I mean, it's talking about something that is uh, an essential part of their lives. Yeah. There's warnings about it. It's used for the symbolism of judgment, but then it's also used through the vine as uh, uh, you know the, the the blessed blessedness of it. And of course, that's the that's the Phrase that Jesus used uses I will not drink of the fruit of the vine
0: until I drink it in the kingdom. So you're saying there's a there's a word difference between it being used as a symbol of judgment versus a symbol of blessing. Like you can you can sort of track the difference in the words that are used. I'm unfamiliar with this. this the first time I've heard this. So. Uh,
4: yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, I definitely when we when we. Ross went through like a month-long lesson on this. (laughs) We changed the wine in the Eucharist. Yeah, Uh, and I don't know what the the Greek is there, but it's obviously it's translated as this phrase. That's interesting. And this this indicates the ceremonial use of wine. Okay, interesting. Okay. Can can you imagine
1: though the first time the disciples heard him say, "This is my blood," and just cannibalistic. Ideas that were
5: probably popping in their head
1: when he said that. As yeah. it six, "You yeah. eat my flesh and drink my blood." You have no
4: part of yeah. Yeah. And of course, they thought he had lost his mind. It's so an that's an abomination. Yeah. That's yeah. look well, got yeah, A lot of people left it because yeah. that was so yeah. bizarre. You know? It goes back to Noah. You know, you go ahead and eat meat, but don't drink the blood because oh, the life know. is in the blood. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it should have. I'm sure it hit him like a ton of bricks, but it should have been a
0: different ton of bricks. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I didn't get it. So so I have something I would like to read here, Um, and this is something that I've been working on for a while, and every time I read it, I change something in it. So even as I'm reading it, I'm going to be sort of hearing how it sounds in my head as I I go through it. I've been thinking about the symbolism of wine and alcohol for some time now, and um, this is a little something about the symbolism of wine that I think we should talk about, since it's such a prominent part of this chapter. Some of this we've already covered, but some of it we haven't. So, wine is a drink in a state of fermentation or decomposition. As such, it is an experience of decay. It is the polar opposite of unleavened manna. First, because the manna is unleavened. And secondly because the manna is high or from heaven, whereas the wine is low or from the ground. Wine is also low by association with blood, which was forbidden to drink under Jewish law. It's also low by association with the burning of serpent venom. Note that both alcohol poisoning and snake poisoning are in the blood. This means that the Eucharistic meal, which is an experience of the cross through the elements of bread and wine, is a meeting point of polar opposites, the high and the low, the sacred and the profane, both come together at the cross and at the Eucharist. The negative aspect of wine goes deeper than this, however. As it is literally a foreign intoxicant, and stay with me here, as it is literally a foreign intoxicant, it occupies the same category in wisdom literature as the strange woman, the archetypal temptress of distraction and chaos, Both wine and the strange woman are warned against repeatedly in Proverbs as dangerous detours from the path of wisdom. Wine is primarily a negative symbol in Scripture. Even from its first use in Genesis 9, when it is associated with the tree of wisdom. I assume you talked about this in Genesis 9, when uh, Noah basically repeats the fall.
4: Okay, I did, Adam and not, I did
0: not make the connection to the Oh okay. of wisdom. Okay, so Adam is, is basically repeating Adam and Eve all over again. Yeah. Um, well, to take that further, the thing that he takes in is the fruit of the vine, the wine, right? Yeah. right? Instead of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. So from the, from the beginning, Jewish tradition has associated these two stories together. Jewish tradition makes much of this association. Uh, the rabbinic midrash went so far as to say that the tree of wisdom was in fact a grapevine. This is in Jewish tradition. Um, in the apocalyptic uh, story of Enoch, when he encounters the tree of wisdom, it smells like grapes. Right. So this is throughout Jewish tradition, this connection between the tree of wisdom and... Uh, The symbolism of wine. All of this negative symbolism of wine is a setup for the great inversion. Wisdom literature continually warns against falling for the strange intoxicant, either wine or the foreign woman, whose allure leads to death. But wisdom literature also celebrates a love affair between the wise man and the foreign woman. This is the great inversion. Christ's pursuit of his foreign and even profane bride does, in fact, lead him to the grave. Right. Just as Proverbs said it would. And Christ calls this pursuit of love a cup of wine that he must drink. In this great inversion, we see the mystery of the gospel. The tree of wisdom turns out to have been the cross all along. Wine is a thing of recreation and rest, a thing of chaos as opposed to order. In its negative aspect, this symbol of recreation and rest has to do with distraction and death. But inverted or redeemed, it is a thing of Sabbath. Sabbath is a holy distraction from work, and it is a kind of death to the world, the world of toil and order-making. It is on the Sabbath that husband and wife may stay home together, drink wine, and renew their vows. The Eucharist brings all of these elements together in sort of a singularity. Um, and then you can think about this sort of fulfilled at the end of time. At the day of the Lord, the passing of the old world and the beginning of the new, the great inversion of wine continues. And we already talked about this. For Babylon and the serpent, God's arrival is experienced as a wine press of wrath, a thing of judgment, while for the foreign bride made holy, it is the wine of the eternal wedding feast. So now I'll open it up for discussion here. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well this has nothing to do with wine, but uh, in our Eucharist uh, liturgy, we talk about the bread as, as the bread was scattered the scattering and, and the let it be back. gathered back together. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Any further thoughts on this?
3: Well,
2: this, this one teacher. Uh, <clears throat> I was trying to, I couldn't remember if the New Testament records Jesus ever using the Greek word buenos, for wine. I was trying to verify if he always strictly said the fruit of the vine. But I did notice this teacher, I've seen this before, in Matthew twenty-six, twenty-nine, the Lord suffered three times the phrase, fruit of the vine is used. Yeah. Oinos, wine, that word is never used there. In which part? Matthew 26 and 29, it's the Lord's Supper.
0: Mm.
2: The, price, so, the fruit of the vine is used three times, but oinos is never used there.
0: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess, but I don't know, that when Jesus gives the teaching about the new wine and the old wineskins, that probably has the word oinos in it, but I, I don't know that. That's why I was thinking that yeah. Jesus
2: did use the word oinos at some point, and I couldn't remember. I kept. Uh, I'm just not sure. Um, but uh, but he did obviously say the fruit of the vine many times. Yes. So, and I don't know that
0: the fruit of the vine necessarily does not mean wine. Right. You know. Right. But there's a, but there's a difference in the words used. And that's got to that's mean something.
2: Yeah, it, it gets your attention. It makes you want to think on it. Um, you know, when I've talked to my sons about alcohol, I pointed out to them that Paul said to Timothy, you know, have some wine. I think he said have some wine instead of water for your stomach. If for your stomach, stomach is, yeah. But then in another place, Paul said, do not be drunk on wine. And he said rather be drunk in the Spirit.
1: Be filled
3: with the Holy Spirit. Or, yeah. thank you be filled. And that's where I was thinking about the connection with the Holy, Holy Spirit, Spirit, because it, you know, it yeah. uses it there. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's that idea of being controlled. You know, I didn't understand what it meant by
1: being filled, but it means to be controlled by. Well,
5: if you if you think, think about like think that. think about the concept of wine and communion mm-hmm. versus grape juice. say uh, grape juice stays in the mouth. It's sweet. It's sticky where wine is warm and hot uh, and penetrates and goes down deep inside. You feel a burn of it going down into your gut. And it's bitter. As a, as a difference, you know, why, you know yeah. why, why I think wine is much more important than grape juice. Because grape juice is sticky, stays in the mouth and just, it doesn't travel, it doesn't penetrate your being like wine does. and uh, so so. In a sense, it's, it's, to me, it reminds us that the modern-day church is sticky and sweet, but it has no depth. So, whereas the wine, Sticks the penetration of the wine down inside you gives it gives Is there it any depth. nutrition it's in wine?
2: Oh, yeah. oh, oh yeah. 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 In wine? Yeah. There is. But that's not negated
4: by it's the alcohol. It's got a lot of sugar in it.
3: Yeah. and I was going to say it's
4: antiseptic, you know? But yeah, the, the grape juice is very much. That's false. like the, that, so that, you know, the, the, yeah.
5: the point. That's like the Holy Spirit, the, the penetration of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. comes down deep inside, you know, planet, you know, know, exactly how all that happens. Where God baptizes baptizes us with the Holy Spirit, he immerses us into the Holy Spirit.
0: So you'll see this thing as part of this wine motif throughout scripture and this is getting back to talking about the great inversion where at the end of the world the oblivious you know nations are eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage you know the world is, is a big party uh, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die you know we saw that earlier in Isaiah uh, meanwhile the uh, people of God are fasting and in a state of repentance. <clears throat> well, then it flips. The rejoicing of the old world is suddenly over, and then the people of God rejoice, right? And then they have you know what Scripture refers to as the wedding feast. So let's look at that in this in this section. I'll well, we'll say one thing real quick. Just studying
5: theater history, Rome by the time Rome fell. They had over a hundred holidays a year. You know, I mean, where they're drinking, and carousing. You know I mean, you wonder what, why this place collapsed. Half the year they're basically partying. You know, so, yeah. And you, we all know when you party, you've got, you got a day of preparation, the day of the party, and then the day of recovery. You know, so you're burning three days of the week.
0: So, so during their hangover, they're planning for the next party. That- mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, for thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations as when the olive tree is beaten as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done so there to your point just the act of gathering and preparing the wine is an act of suffering and death but then it changes verse 14 they lift up their voices they sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord they shout from the west Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. He's still saying this with sort of the direction of Tyre in mind, talking about the coastlands. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away. Woe was me for the traitors have betrayed with betrayal? The, traitors at the trade. I don't really know what to say about this section other than to say it's essentially a repeat of Isaiah 6 where he sees the nations which are sort of personified by the dragons, you know, in God's, in God's court. They're serving him and they're, they're, they're worshiping him. And he says, woe is me. Um, I don't really know what to say about it other than that. Um, You know, uh, at, the, at the end of time, at the moment of great judgment, you better, you better be sure that you are in the seed because that's all that's going to be left. Yeah. That's yeah. all that's left. And so after the great apocalypse, all who are in the seed will uh, live out the story of Noah and be fruitful and multiply. And then there will be songs of praise to God from all over the world terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. It's, It's not an arbitrary thing that we keep coming back to the story of Noah when we talk about this stuff. For here we go. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers. Like a drunken man, there's the wine again, it sways like a hut, its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls, and it will not rise again. So even Isaiah connects this, this sort of apocalyptic vision of the end of one world and the start of the new with the story of Noah. You see that these, these stories go together. I know Craig has been saying this, and I, I strongly agree with him, that these early stories in Genesis are... are in, in, the, in the grand story of what God is doing, they are—they're—a they're setup, right for this stuff. Um, they are so that you recognize it when it happens. You say, "I've seen this before. I saw this in the story of Noah." On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven, and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. Alright. This is not the only time in Scripture that alongside a reference to the flood, it also talks about the the uh, the imprisoning of angels. This is not the only time that this comes up. I don't have much to say about it because there's not much that can be said about it. I'm just pointing out that this is not the only time that this shows up. Now, we tend to have a very, how do I say this?
3: <laughs>
0: we tend to have a very human-centric view of the sort of basic things of our faith, and so when we talk about the story of salvation and what sort of illustrations we should use to think about it, we use we use things like courtroom analogies, and we talk about um, penal substitution, and we use we use examples. To discuss salvation in ways that are, it's just, it's just God and man. It's just God and man. That's how we think about it. All right. Way, way older than that
3: mm-hmm.
0: is a way of talking about the story of salvation that talks about it as set in the great conflict in the heavenlies, right? And Craig has done a lot of work on this. There's a booklet out in the hallway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's titled The Conflict in the Heavenlies, is it not? Oh, that's the way all goes. Oh, what's the one that... Oh, Christ, Christ, before, Christ, the Christ, the Christ yeah. before the foundation of the world. Yeah. All right, so yeah. this is this is a way to see this stuff, and I'm not going to say it's the only way to see it, but, but the story of what God is doing with humanity is set in something much bigger than even we realize mm-hmm. what is going on. Yes. And so Second Peter, when it's talking about the flood, brings up angels being imprisoned. It's essentially the same thing as what we see here. Um, there is a lot of speculation that you can kind of fall into, and I think that's probably unhelpful. But this is there in Scripture, right? And so it's a good reminder for all of us to not neglect what Walton refers to as the excluded middle,
3: mm-hmm.
0: which is the realm of principalities and powers and mm-hmm. the conflict in the heavenlies that is always going on around us. Yes. Yeah. We are still living this out today. Mm-hmm. right? And there's a lot more that could be said about it, but we're cl- coming up close to the end of the time, and I don't want that to take over the whole rest of our time, so... Um. oh God you are my God I will exalt you I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things plans formed of old faithful and sure you've made the city a heap the fortified city a ruin the foreigner's palace is a city no more it will never be rebuilt uh, the Septuagint adds here so be it Lord amen mm-hmm. Therefore strong peoples will glorify you, cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. Uh, Does that sound familiar? Shelter from a storm and the shade from the heat. We've seen that before in Isaiah. That was back in chapter 4. And we said back then that that was referring to Christ. Christ is the... Christ is the, the shelter, the tabernacle, the uh, the booth on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right. This was why this would, that's that's why Peter was wrong when he said, Let's make a booth for all three of you. Right? It's because there's only one booth. There's only one shade. One shelter from the storm, one shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against the wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue so the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, here's the great inversion, y'all, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Well, the fathers read this, and they said, well, obviously this is talking about the Eucharist. Um, and he will swallow up on this mountain that is the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. If the sign of Eliakim, and us talking about resurrection, wasn't clear enough, right, Isaiah makes it very clear here. This is the promise of resurrection. He will swallow up death forever. And this is, again, the great inversion. The grave was this great swallowing force that would swallow everything. Right, so Christ voluntarily goes into the grave, and then he swallows up death. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So the Orthodox Study Bible, I use, there are several study Bibles that I use repeatedly, and the Orthodox Study Bible is one of them. And when it comes to this verse, they say that Thomas fulfills this in John 20, 28. It will be said on that day, on the day of resurrection, it will be said on Easter morning, behold our God, right? So they say, well, Thomas fulfills this when he puts his hand in yes. Jesus' side. Yes. And he says, my Lord and my God. He had to wait to yeah, He had to wait a week. He had to wait a week, because yes. We <laughs> well, but a week later, it was still the, it was still the day of resurrection. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, Alright, let's stop there. That's a good stopping point. Anybody have any closing thoughts? Amen. Amen. Yeah. So be it, Lord. Thank y'all for your attention. Thank you. Four, to-